Let us pray. Loving and most merciful God, we thank you for this day that you have given us for the season of Lent, for the endurance that you have given us for, to meet our Lenten challenges and to be renewed by your spirit each day. We ask that you would continue to guide us in the way of truth and understanding that we too might be enlightened by your word and thus take it forward and enlighten others. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. Bless us and guide us now and always. In your name we pray. It's important for us to contrast this conversation that we have today with the woman at the well with the conversation that we heard last week about Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, was a biblical insider. He was a Pharisee, a man who was well-versed in the teachings of the law, and he came to have a conversation with Jesus because he saw things that Jesus was doing that he says, no man can do these things apart from God. But the reason why he decided to go and have this conversation with Jesus at night is because as a Pharisee, he didn't want to be seen associating with Jesus because of all of the discomfort that the fellow Pharisees and other onlookers might give Nicodemus. So he chose the cover of darkness to try to have an opportunity to unpack some of these things that he was witnessing in Jesus. Now, as I stressed last week, the conversation that Nicodemus had with Jesus was one of a man who was trying to come off of years of learning and years of tradition and trying to understand the mutable nature of the Holy Spirit. And it just seemed that even though Nicodemus only asked two questions, it seemed that he was getting deeper and deeper in a quagmire of his own creation. He wanted to be able to access what Jesus was talking about, but Jesus says, unless you can be born of, again, of the Spirit you will truly not understand what's going on. And so Nicodemus is coming at it from his hard and fast learning. He probably left that conversation with more questions than he had answers. And I did note last week that in time, Nicodemus did get on board with Jesus and did publicly proclaim him, but it wasn't until the man was already like near death on a cross. So let's contrast this with the conversation that Jesus has with this unnamed woman. First of all, she's unnamed. She's just Samaritan woman at the well at noon. The conversation takes place at noon, the hottest part of the day. Jesus has journeyed to this area and to this community. His disciples have gone on to go and buy some refreshments and some food. And while he is there, he engages the woman in conversation. Samaritans and Jews had slightly similar beliefs, but um, they didn't, the two groups didn't think very highly of the other. And of course, uh, Jews and Samaritans had very little conversation. So Jesus is mo definitely moving outside of his boundaries to engage this woman in a conversation, especially as an unmarried man, an unmarried woman. This should have been considered taboo. But Jesus is a guy who writes his own rules because he has an understanding that uh, far exceeds our own. And his movement is always true and just. So as he sees the woman there drawing water at the well, he asks her for a drink, which is rather quite forward. And she engages him in the same conversation with the same sort of intensity. She's like, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a woman of Samaritan, for a drink? And 
this is, this is the bait that continues to enliven the conversation. Jesus says, if you had known who you were talking to, you, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you living water. So now we go, now the woman still is on the track of physical water. And she's like, where? She's like, you don't even, you don't even have a bucket to draw this well. Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? So thus showing the common ground between her beliefs and Jesus' beliefs. Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? But you don't even have anything to draw with. So how are you going to get this living water? He says, the water that I give you will never thirst of. It comes from the well of the spring of life. And so she's like, well, good. I, I would like some of that miracle water. Give me some of that miracle water so I won't have to keep coming back here to fetch water. And Jesus realizes that, you know, they're, on, they're operating on two different planes. He's speaking mystical language. She's speaking practical understanding. But then soon the mystical talk fades away and she begins to engage him in a theological conversation. She says, well, you know, you, you, we worship here on this mountain, and you Jews feel that true worship is, is in Jerusalem. Well, who's right? And Jesus is like, well, you worship what you don't know, what you don't understand. We know salvation comes from the Jews. And this is where the woman who meets Jesus in this unsolicited, inappropriate conversation, at least initially on the outlooks, it starts that way. But what it really is, it's just good old-fashioned evangelism, that Jesus is sowing seeds, and he's just seeing who out there is ripe for germination. So that's, that's, that's the inward action. He's not concerned with societal customs right now. He is like, here is somebody who could quite possibly be part of what he defines as true worshipers. So he engages her with all the legitimacy that he would gauge anyone who would want to experience the fullness of God. So when he tells her that salvation comes from the Jews, she says, well, I believe in the Messiah, the one who is to come. And scholars have noted that this is the first time in John's gospel that Jesus actually reveals who his identity. And not only not to an unknown, I mean, the woman's not even named, and to a person who is outside of his faith system, he reveals to her, he says, the one that you were speaking with, I am he. Now, the woman's not concerned anymore about drawing water from the well. This conversation with Jesus has completely changed her priorities in life, has changed her direction, has given her an entirely new call and new countenance. She leaves her vessel, and she goes into the city to go and proclaim this encounter that she has had. I met a man who told me everything that I had ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? She becomes an evangelist herself. Before she leaves, the disciples are, they return with food. They're disturbed by the conversation that Jesus is having with the woman. They don't drive her away. There is no need to drive her away because already brewing in her understanding is the desire that something significant is taking place here. This person that I'm speaking with is seen right through me, and, but in that good way, he's offering me a new opportunity. So while she is gone evangelizing members of her community, 
The disciples try to urge Jesus, eat something. You know, it's been a long journey, eat something. And then again, he goes back to the mystical talk. I, I have food to eat that you do not, not know about. And then again, <laughs> the disciples go in the bumpkin mode. Surely nobody's given him food, have they? We were only gone for a little while. Maybe that woman gave him something. He's like, no, the food is to do the will of the one who sent me. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To make the reality of the kingdom of God known to those who would have ears to hear. See, this is something that we need to be very clear about Jesus. Is that Jesus, if Jesus, if Jesus evangelized the way we evangelize, no lives would be transformed. We are very selective the way that we want to disseminate our spiritual wisdom. We want to make sure that we've ticked off all the boxes, um, take away all the trigger language, uh, make sure that we don't offend anybody, get the right pronouns. I'm not saying this in a mocking fashion. I'm just saying that this is the mental calisthenics that we go through in order to proclaim Christ as somebody who ushered us into the way of true worship, to use John's language. So oftentimes, when we do all of them, the, the calculations required to invite someone into the experience of faith, we go, oh, I'm just too exhausted. And then, of course, the offer is never extended. So Jesus is sitting there. He knows the woman is a Samaritan. He knows that she's unmarried. He knows that uh, it's noonday and that perhaps maybe her position in her own community is not held in high regard, which is why she has to go to the well to draw at noon the hottest part of the day when everyone's like, you don't go to the well in the desert, the hottest part of the day. But you go there if you're a person who somehow has been marginalized because that's when it's available. But Jesus doesn't see this woman as a person who is living in a marginalized state. He sees somebody who is capable of being brought back into the fold, one of those worshipers who will worship God in spirit and in truth. He sees the potential. He sees her capacity as being an evangelist. He sees all of the promise that's within her. So he engages her like he engages everybody in his ministry to draw out what God has always planted in them. And she meets him, unlike Nicodemus, who asked too many questions because he's too caught up and snared in his tradition. She meets Jesus right where he's at, engaging him in a theological banter without regard for what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, uh, when's the conversation taking place, who are you speaking with. She engages him because she's been thinking about these things herself, and she's had no one to talk about them with except this strange Jewish man who happens to show up at the hottest part of the day and ask her for a drink. So as she begins to share with him some of her thoughts and some of her findings about salvation, she realizes that she's talking to the source. She really is talking to the source of the wellspring of life eternal. And just that realization is enough to cause her to do things differently. See, she doesn't return back to her community as the person she left, the person who has to go to the well the hottest part of the day because of this or that poor decision, because of placing her security and her dignity in the reliance of, of a series of, of poor choice husbands. No, she now returns because the confidence and her encouragement and her esteem has now been bolstered 
that she has had a conversation with the one whom God has sent, the one who will cultivate true believers, the ones who will worship the spirit God in spirit and in truth. She's no longer concerned about the water for which you will drink and thirst again. She is now concerned about being able to carry this message forth of others who were also the thirsty Samaritans, who were also sort of maybe wandering in the same half-truth that they were wandering in as she, as she was. So now she comes back with a powerful testimony. And here's what's so delicious about it is that Jesus was right about her when she does go back to her community. And she says, I met a man who told me everything that I had ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? No one says, no one questions the source. Right? This is something that, this is, something that is almost lost on us in this fourth chapter of John, is that so often when we have determined and defined people in our community, we never let them break from that definition. If they have been in prison, and even though they are out, they were that person who was in prison. If they are a person who has addiction, and now they are sober, yeah, but they, they struggle with addiction. If they're that person who can't keep, keep a job, and now all of a sudden they're gainfully employed and being productive, yeah, but you know, the other shoe's going to drop. They can't, you know, they're unreliable. Their past will catch up with them. But when women, when this woman was set free by Jesus' affirmation, by his willingness to engage in her, not as a result of past deeds and events and things visited upon her, but by the fact that she was one who was hungering for the Spirit of God in truth. She returns to her community with a proclamation, and the people do not look upon her as, uh, as somebody who has had a few near misses. They accept her testimony. And as a matter of fact, their testimony animates their movement. So while Jesus is having this mystical conversation with his disciples who are trying to get him to eat something, the Samaritans come back on the basis of the woman's testimony and they ask Jesus to stay with them. They ask him to stay with them on the basis of a testimony of a woman who says, I met a man who told me everything I ever did. You might want to check him out. So they come and they ask Jesus, will you stay with us? Can we experience your teaching firsthand? And he stays with them for two days. And he teaches and he instructs. We do not know the content of that instruction. John doesn't give us that. But we know it is so significant that at the end, the Samaritans who were gathered, who were evangelized by that woman, turned to her and say, it is no longer on the basis of your testimony that we believe, for we have heard the man for ourselves, and we believe that truly this is the Savior of the world. When we try to reconcile the two conversations, Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the unnamed Samaritan woman in chapter 4, what we at least what I've been trying to do, is to try to think about how we find ourselves in similar positions at various times in our life. Nicodemus represents our desire to learn, to study, to apply that wisdom in the world. And we also realize that in Nicodemus that sometimes our scholarship and the application of our scholarship can become a cage that impedes our own movement. 
Nicodemus could recognize from his learning, he could recognize and see the image of God on Jesus, but he couldn't understand exactly how God was moving through Jesus and through Jesus' followers. There was a disconnect somewhere between what he had read and applied in the scrolls and the way it was unfolding before him in flesh and bone. And even though Jesus was trying to explain it to him using the terms of the wind and saying that the Spirit moves that way in individuals who are caught up in the Spirit, Nicodemus was still having a hard time trying to reconcile that. Sometimes our scholarship can stand in the way that even when we are given the key, we still cannot seem to operate the lock. What we find in the woman is that she does not possess the same uh, level of entanglement. She's had some thoughts about spirit. She's had some thoughts about the Messiah. But what we find with her is that there's, there's more play in her willingness to be able to accept and adopt uh, um, an ever-folding new reality of how God works in the world. She's so flexible that she's able to encounter the reality of God at noon at the well from a strange man in a conversation that she didn't anticipate, one that she didn't prepare for, one that wasn't steeped in history or tradition. She's just doing an, an, an afternoon errand, and then there is this moment which completely transforms and redirects her life. But we need both of these characters. We need Nicodemus and we need this unnamed woman because we realize that this mutable spirit is still trying to work and have its way to help us to maximize our faith. And this is where I get gummed up in the works because in my desire to try to reconcile the two conversations that Jesus has, I realize that, that there are conversations that, that we are having and spiritual conversations that we are having about how are we to maximize the gifts that God has given us? How are we to build on our traditions without our traditions becoming an impediment to us? And I don't have any good answers. Because I could race ahead in the story and, and editorialize and recreate scenarios which John's not there. John wrote this gospel with the hopes that people would believe in the signs of Jesus and they would come to believe that, that he was the savior of the world and that he came to help them access the reality of God. And maybe as we hear these stories, we feel closer to God. We feel, we see ourselves in the characters that Jesus interacts with. We see some similarities in perhaps their interplay. And maybe that makes us feel a little bit better about our own circumstances in the times when we are too thick to understand the reality of the God, like Nicodemus. And then there are other times when all of a sudden it just seems that the Spirit just comes in and it's fluid and it makes sense and it changes the direction in the course of our lives like the woman at the well. And it's not for us to sit down and check a calendar as for what Nicodemus moments we've had and what woman at the well moments we've had. 
but to allow ourselves to be the kind of a people who do not have and represent an intractable, unproductive, impossible theology that doesn't allow us to see the expanse of God in the world unfolding, working anew through us and through those around us. A very common question for each and every one of us is why do we still continue to pursue worship? Why do we continue to still read our scriptures? Why do we engage in devotions and this practice? I think that's a very important question. Are we coming at it because we want to deepen our Nicodemus understanding? Because we want to uh, enshrine ourselves in such a thick, impenetrable tradition that no one can touch us, that, that at the end of our lives everyone can say, well, they always meant to church but they never really actually knew what the substance of that was for us. They just, they, they saw the action. They saw the action and they saw the movement. They saw the likeness of a church person, but it didn't necessarily, conv but they didn't understand our theology. They didn't understand our motivation behind it. Or, or are we returning to worship, returning to devotion, returning to biblical study because we want to learn to ask new questions. At our Bible study, that, well, book study, book study that we're doing right now with Philip Gully, we are learning to ask new questions. We are taking, a, a Frederick Nietzsche wrote a book called Twilight of the Idols, and he called, he called the hammer the tuning fork, and we take, we take the hammer to our idols, basically you smash them up. That's what we're trying to do on Wednesday nights as we ask new questions about this tradition that we are encased in. We don't want the tradition to become our peril. We want the tradition to be honorable. We want the tradition to stand for something, but we don't want the tradition to get in our way of being able to glimpse God and the new ways of the spirit and the ways that we might be able to unfold and serve the spirit in the world. Tradition's good. Religious devotion is great, keeps churches in motion, pays the bills, pays the rent, if you know what I mean. But an intractable faith bleeds us of our life force. If the only thing that we can get at the end of the day is sitting in the right pew, having the right posture, conveying the, the right sense of appearances, but there is no animating, hungering, thirsting theology that's behind the appearance, then this will all fade away. It will all fade away. It will just be, it'll just be gestures. It'll just be secret handshakes and insider's talk. There has to be some way for us to be able to understand that we are called to be Nicodemus, but we are also called to be the woman at the well. We are called to have an understanding and to think and to read and to study, but we are also called to be ready for the Spirit to strike us wherever and whenever and to redirect us if the case may be. Many churches that we have been a part of and that we have witnessed have gone down in their tradition 
They went down to the tradition because they hung on to the tradition as opposed to the animating spirit that was calling them to maybe redirect, redefine, reconfigure their tradition. But the tradition was, this, was their God. And as a result of it, they shrank, they shrank, they shrank, and they disappeared, and they vanished. But what I like about the animating spirit of the woman at the well is that she wasn't looking for transformation. She wasn't operating on a hard and fast tradition. If she was, she wouldn't have had that conversation with Jesus. Some strange Jewish man comes to her and says, give me a drink of water. She would have taken her and collected her goods and she would have said, wish you a good day. I don't know who you are. I've never seen you before. Why am I talking to you? This could be a trick. For us to continue to be the best possible witnesses, those who are called to witness in spirit and truth, we have to be willing to endure these surprise moments that God would have to give for us. These revelatory moments that will come in unexpected times, unexpected places that will cause us to engage in conversations with people that we wouldn't have given two thoughts to. But yet all of a sudden, if we just stay present with the conversation, if we endure the questions, perhaps all of a sudden there's some revelation that will come behind it, which we wouldn't have gotten if we didn't walk through. That is what the contemporary church needs today. It needs more people who are willing to ask questions that have not already been answered in advance. To ask questions and to live in a state of some mystery and to rethink all the things that we used to hold dear about our religious devotion. And to ask ourselves, is there something in here that perhaps maybe could be rethought, reconfigured, readjusted in order that I might be able to have more opportunity to labor and to, to harvest that which others have labored for? I love that, that description that Jesus gives his disciples. He's like, there were prophets that had come before you. And they had sown the seeds of devotion, and now you were called to, to harvest that, but you didn't labor for it. <laughs> that each and every one of us stands on the shoulders of somebody who had a greater faith than our own. But it was a faith that allowed their theology to expand. I want to be a part of a community that has an expanding theology. We simply have to accept that God is still working that the spirit is still moving, that these are not old dead legends, but that animating spirit force continues to move through us and will cause us to do things that even defy our own reason. I, as I said, the reason why Nicodemus was having such a difficult time is because some things sounded so ridiculous to him and it didn't align with what he had learned in his biblical study. And we are going to have this same experience as well. It's okay to ask questions, and it's okay to ask those questions for which no one can give you a decent answer. Not your pastor, not your spouse, not your favorite religious author. Because some things can only be sorted out by a time-honored devotion with God. Do not these questions drive us away from God. Perhaps these questions can drive us further and deeper into an exploration of God. 
so we can learn the varieties of religious experience. Anyway, I have to close this. And I just want us to think that there's, there is a place for a Nicodemus persona and a woman at the well. I think that there's these dualities. Uh, these dualities represent the types of people that God reaches out and calls. And I believe that sometimes we dwell in these two hemispheres at various points in our lives. Sometimes we get it, sometimes we do not. My invitation is that we not be frustrated when we don't get it and that we not be too arrogant when we do. Because if the woman was too arrogant in her understanding, she would not have gone and conveyed that to her fellow members in the community. She could have kept that secret wisdom to herself. And I think good evangelism is recognizing that everyone is on a journey and everyone's along the way. And sometimes we need to hold one another's hands in order to, to cross the divide. So I hope that, that these two characters, these two conversations, these two character sketches are enough for you to realize that wherever you are on the journey, on the spiritual journey right now, is exactly where God needs you to be. Don't go backwards. Strive to go forward. And if you need partners in order to make that next step, secure them. Engage that conversation. Do not be afraid of the great unknown. Because I really do believe that God has us all firmly by the shoulders and is leading us exactly where we need to be with the revelations coming at the appropriate times and places.